gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Due to the topics discussed on this week's episode, it may not be appropriate to listen to in front of your children, or appropriate for younger listeners. Hi, welcome to Theology Canals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And we're both so excited about today's guest and her new book. We're going to be talking to Rachel Welcher about her new book, which is coming out November 10th, called Talking Back to Purity Culture. And I know that there's a lot of our listeners that are aware that the book is coming out and really excited about it. Uh, But just for starters, Rachel, could you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a pastor's daughter and a pastor's wife currently. Um, I grew up in Northern California and miss the ocean now that I'm here in Iowa. (laughs) Um, So I was a high school English teacher for most of my Uh, professional life. But in the last few years, I've gotten the chance to go back to school and earn my um, master's degree in divinity from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And that's where I started my research for this book about purity culture. Um, I'm also an editor at Fathom Magazine and a poet. I've got a couple collections out there. Um, So I like to do a lot of different things, but writing is my true passion. So why did you write this book? I mean, I know you talk about it in the book, but why did you write this book? Well, for a few different reasons. Um, First of all, when I started my research at St. Andrews, um, I had to pick a topic for my dissertation. And at the time, I was um, friends with a few different Christian women who'd been sexually abused, and they were just heavy on my heart. And I wanted to go back and read the books of my youth, the purity and dating books, um, the books about masculinity and femininity, and see how those messages um, would impact people who've been sexually abused. And so that's kind of where it all started. 
once I finished my degree and uh, started turning it into an actual book, I realized that my own personal story had connections to purity culture as well. While I'm not a victim of sexual abuse, I had um, followed all the rules, quote unquote, in all the books and had gotten married out of college, um, was married to someone who I met doing ministry together. And even though I followed all the rules, he ended up divorcing me five years into our marriage. And so I had to grapple with the fact that these purity culture promises that if you stay pure until marriage, you'll get married, you'll stay married, you'll have great sex and babies and all these things that um, those promises weren't actually true in my life. And uh, they weren't in the Bible either. And so I wanted to go back and study purity culture even more in depth, not just how it impacted victims of sexual abuse, although that's a huge focus in my book, but how it spoke to us on many different levels and has impacted the church and how we can do a better job moving forward. Thank you. Um, that's very helpful. Uh, and I was going to say, Colleen and I both read the book and really enjoyed it. Um, so highly recommend it to others. I wanted to ask you, as we're talking about this, what is it, what is the purity culture? When you talk about, you know, the purity culture, you know, how did it get started? So, I mean, there's been, if you read Sarah Mosliner's book, Virgin Nation, she traces the history of purity culture back to the Victorian era. But the focus of my book is on what I call modern evangelical purity culture, and specifically in America, although it absolutely existed elsewhere, and in um, denominations and religions other than Christianity. But my focus is on um, late 1990s, early 2000s purity culture. Um, a time kind of defined by a reaction to the 80s, a reaction to fear of STDs and teen pregnancy, and this desire to spread abstinence education to teenagers. And so that infiltrated not only youth groups, but also high schools, secular high schools and churches. And I focus mainly on the books that we read during that era and the impact that those messages had. Do you mind m mentioning some of those books? Sure. So I abs didn't tackle all of your favorites, um, <laughs> all the ones we read, but I tackled quite a few. Uh, tried to pick the most popular ones so that I wasn't building a straw man. So um, the ones for men that men read, young men, uh, were Every Man's Battle, Wild at Heart, and I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And they were way more for women. <laughs> and so um, a few of the ones that I uh, study and pull from in my research are so some of the books, um, and there are quite a few for women, so I just picked some of the most popular ones. So the Ludies wrote quite a few books together on dating and purity. Um, so I looked at Romance God's Way by them. A book called um, Let Me Be a Woman by Elizabeth Elliot, captivated by the same authors as Every Man's Battle, and quite a few for women. So you guys might be familiar, some of your listeners will be familiar with some of those books. Maybe they even read them as teenagers. My husband read, um, I guess, Dating Goodbye ah. um, before we met. Uh, I I didn't read many of those. Uh, there were a couple that were kind of popular in our RUF circles um, from what you mentioned. Uh, one, and I mentioned this to you in a conversation recently that um, I threw uh, Lady in Waiting across mm -hmm. the room, uh, mm -hmm. similar reasons, similar kind of book. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely familiar with the books that you mentioned. Thank you. Absolutely. 
So one of the things you talk about is the false promises. And I've heard so many stories similar to, you know, what you talked about with your background. You know, I do everything right. I need, I, um, you know, if I do everything right, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have a good marriage that's going to last forever and a good sex life and blah, blah, blah. Um, so can you talk about those false promises with purity culture? Yeah, so I think this is one of the main problems we see with purity culture. One of the main reasons you see people who grew up in it feeling kind of embittered against the church and even God is that growing up, we were taught that if we obeyed God and behaved properly sexually, which meant saving sex for marriage, and some books went so far as to say even, you know, saving your first kiss and all that, um, that if we follow those rules, there were these what I call sexy carrots dangled in front of us um, promises that if if you do these things, you will get this. You will eventually get to have sex was the promise. And within that promise is the assumption that we'll all get married, which, of course, we know is not true. That's not a promise for any Christian. Um, scripture speaks very well of singleness, that it's a, a, a good thing. Um, and yet in purity culture, there was this assumption that sexual purity had a finish line and that that finish line was marriage. And then once you get married, you will have an amazing, mind-blowing sex life from night one um, was the assumption. And then some books even promised that you would have children because if you avoided STDs from immorality, then you wouldn't have to deal with um, those complications. And so one book said that if you obey God sexually, you will have babies with ease. Um, so then when you talk to people who grew up in purity culture who are dealing with infertility, even that feels like a failed promise. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I think, you know, Colleen and I both have seen or had these conversations with, with women, especially women, although it does also affect men. We just, because of our audience and because of who we interact with most, we hear it from the women. Um has done quite a bit of damage to what they think about themselves and their marriages and certainly about what struggles within marriage and infertility and such. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I liked about, um, about your book and about one of the premises that you that you emphasize is that you think that, or you believe that we should incorporate conversations about sexuality and, and sexual ethics into our regular conversations as believers, that it shouldn't be, you know, just a hush-hush private discussion, but it should be part of what we do. Right. Um, how would you recommend going about that in our lives? That is such a good question. And I think it's one of the hardest ones because up until now, what I've seen in the church is that conversations about sexuality have specific places that they quote unquote belong. Um, usually they separate men and women when we talk about these things. Um, usually separating youth from adults. <laughs> Maybe there's like two adults in the room and the rest are all teenagers. So we don't have a lot of diversity within our conversations about this. It tends to be um, those who are in the same, you know, stage relationally. So a bunch of singles hearing about sex or a bunch of marrieds hearing about sex. Um, women hearing about it, men hearing about it. And when we divide ourselves into these groups, when we talk about sexuality, what happens is some of these misunderstandings and stereotypes just get reinforced. And so what I would love to see is for the church to become more comfortable talking about these issues 
in mixed company, um, both men and women, people with different relationship statuses, different ages and different struggles. And I think one of the first things we have to do is realize that talking about sexuality doesn't have to be sexy. Um, this idea that like we are going to actually cause someone to stumble by just bringing up a topic related to sexuality um, re reveals a lot of problems with <laughs> with the way we view um, our sexuality. Sexuality is a God created good. It existed before the fall. And so I think we have to find ways to talk about this um, where we're not giggling and blushing and feeling as though we're doing something wrong. Um how to do that practically, I think that's that's the tough issue. I, I write in the book about this vision I have of a small group with uh, widows and teenagers and same-sex attracted and married and single and men and women all um, talking about these issues together. And I think it can start practically with just asking one another, what were you taught about fill in the blank? You know, whether it's what were you taught about masculinity, femininity, um, sex, marriage, singleness, and then discussing what we think about those things now. There's nothing sexy about that. There's nothing titillating. It's just a theological discussion. And so I think we can actually comfortably enter into these conversations if we frame them the right way. And maybe we can work ourselves uh, to a place where we are more comfortable talking about um, the whole of our personhood, including our sexuality. The Bible discusses sexuality. Um, we should also be discussing it and have it integrated into our conversations. But it's become so taboo that I think the church has forgotten how to to integrate sexuality into regular conversation. It's interesting thinking about different generations and what they were told, because I had that conversation with my, grand, my grandma, actually, who mm. was married in uh, 1940, and and she even talked to me about her her wedding night. Oh, um, I mean, not in, inappropriately, but right, right, as a young woman getting married. And I think a, a lot of my friends. So I was born in 1973. A lot of my my friends, we weren't told anything whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Just it really, at least in my experience, wasn't talked about a lot. And remember, one of my friends got married before I did. And, you know, she came home from her honeymoon and we all went over, how was it? And she just cried. She said, how come nobody told me um, what the honeymoon night was going to be like? Mm. And the only thing my mom said to me <laughs> before I got married was, um, just remember that in our family, you can get pregnant very easily just if your husband looks in your direction. That's about the only thing my mom said to me. Um, oh, my and goodness. And so I, I think that, and I love my mom, but I, I think that, you know, maybe it was talked about more with purity culture, but just not in the right ways. And I've heard from girls um, in our Facebook group say that they were told things like, um, your husband's going to want sex all the time, mm -hmm. and you're probably not going to, and you need to just do it. And yep. just even... And I've thought so much about this. I've been married 25 years. Just, you know, I rarely hear sex talked about in, I, I think, a wise or correct way. Um, mm -hmm. But one of those, one of those things is um, when the way we talk about virginity and the emphasis, and you talk about this, especially for 
women and there's you know a lot of a lot of struggles that come from this uh what damage does that hyper focus cause Mm. i mean there's so much that could be said is that you brought up the fact that christian women are sex is if it is talked about it's framed in this way that men want it and women don't um so you start out if if you are a woman who has a sex drive um then you automatically feel ashamed, I think of it, because you're told that it's it's basically sex is for men um, and that it's just a duty for wives. And so those of us who, um, you know, experience our sexuality wonder if we're like outliers um, instead of framing the conversation that men and women are both sexual and that sex in marriage is for men and women. Um, so that's a whole topic. But this hyperfixation on virginity Um, it absolutely was emphasized to women more than men. And it was emphasized as the number one thing that you had to offer your spouse. Um, The greatest gift is the gift of your virginity on your wedding night. Um, Even above like just a godly character or, um, you know, developing the fruits of the spirit and all those things. But it was just this, this state of sexuality, the state of virginity, the damage that this has caused, Oh my goodness. Um, to women who've had their, um, virginity stolen from them. Um, but then even women who have, uh, committed sexual sin in the past feel less than whole and believe that they have less to offer a future spouse that they are somehow damaged goods. And we see this impacting Christian marriages where um, couples who maybe again, sin sexually or were sinned against sexually before marriage believe that they're starting off on the wrong foot, that they cannot have a, as good of a marriage because of their past. Um, and more than that, I think it just reduces women to one aspect of our humanity because in purity culture, women are either a sexual stumbling block or a sexual outlet in marriage. And both of those things dehumanize women in the eyes of ourselves, but also in the eyes of men. Yeah. And it's the women as objects. It's the, right. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty common language, unfortunately. Um, another aspect of that about how it's taught you know, one of the things we see is that women are told like about being uh, a stumbling block, right? So right. it becomes a woman's responsibility then to keep men from lusting or to keep their lust in check, either if you're single right. or if you're married. Um, so how would you answer that? Is it the duty or responsibility of women to keep men in check? No. <laughs> <laughs> Short and answer, I, yes. <laughs> and I, well, and I think that um, we need to hear that spoken out loud because the assumption for so long in the church has been that women are the kind of the moral police that we, so what purity culture taught was, and it came from this idea called gender essentialism, which Mm -hmm. um, this idea that women are morally superior to men, which we know biblically is not true. Um, And what's interesting is that this idea that women are morally superior is portrayed as like a compliment to women in purity culture, but it's actually a burden because what it does is it says that we are in charge of not only our own sexual actions, but the actions of others around us. Um, when we look at scripture, of course, we see that 
we are all held individually accountable for our sins. Um, and so if someone is to lust after us, that is um, lust that they have committed within their own heart because sin does not come from outside a man, but inside a man. Right. So I think, and I don't know how much you want to talk about this because it's a whole nother top, a whole nother <laughs> podcast episode, but modesty is one of those hot topics that kind of falls under this conversation. Um, this idea that what women wear it is the sin, not how men respond to what women wear. And while modesty is absolutely something to consider, I think what's happened is that the responsibility has been removed from Christian men and placed entirely on Christian women, um, which doesn't help either gender and isn't biblical. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, men, um, if you have ever looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Um, that's how lust is framed as a, as a sin that one commits um, individually and is held individually responsible. If a woman is intentionally wearing something to cause um, a man to sin sexually, she will be held responsible for her own selfishness. But if a man lusts after her, he will be held responsible for his lust. And thankfully at the cross of Christ, all these sins can find forgiveness. But I do think it's important that we um, untangle culpability because when we get into cases of sexual abuse, it's very important to understand that what you wore or said did not make someone sexually assault you. Very good point. And I've heard from a lot of young women that grew up in, in purity culture, just the pressure on them. Um, yeah. You know, and I think Rebecca Lemke even talked about... Um, you know, if I was trying to dress modestly and then a man still lusted because you can dress modestly and a man can still lust after you that, OK, was I not behaving modestly enough or, you know, right. what did I do wrong that a man right. would look at me like this? And it's it's really just awful. Well, and I, I think there's a very clear connection between that rhetoric and rape culture that we see in secular culture, you know, that this idea that what were you wearing? What were you doing? Why didn't you prevent this from happening to you? Um, and it's kind of devastating when you realize how much the church uses rape culture rhetoric. Um, so that's something I talk about a bit in my book as well. Yeah, I appreciated uh, that section. Uh, so one of the things that came with, with purity culture was this way of idolizing marriage and family in the church. And so what happens when we idolize marriage and family in our churches to those who don't fit the neat little categories of married with children mm -hmm. and, and how can we uh, serve them? That's a great question. I mean, I think what we see happening is that those who don't fit into the nuclear family, whether they're singles, widows, the same sex attracted and celibate, uh, they get pushed to the margins of our churches. And if you, you know, if you go onto Twitter, for instance, you see a lot of Christians um, talking about this, saying that they feel unseen, they feel invisible as singles in the church. And it's really been, so my husband and I, we've both been single and married, then single again, and now we're married to one another. So um, his first wife died of cancer and my first husband left me. So We've experienced all the different seasons. Um, he's been a widower. I've been a divorcee, um, all that. And so 
we've only been married, we've been married less than three years and we remember very well what it was like to be single the second time around. Um, so we've talked a lot just how, about how we can as a married couple, make sure that the singles around us feel seen and loved and not less than. Um, and so for us, practically speaking, it's, it's nothing flashy. It's listening to them and um, meeting some of their needs where we can. Um, I think one of the hardest things about being single in the church is that you don't have that um, partner that is their goal is to help you flourish. And so, you know, you might have a really great roommate or good family and good friends, but that person that's there every day, every night. Um, and so one of the things we can do for singles is listen to their needs and see if there are ways that we can um, help them flourish. And, I think too, just not having this hyper fixation on um, family, husband, wife, and kids um, in church, where we only celebrate things that you know have to do with the nuclear family, um, where we make it seem like the only people who are spiritually mature are those who are married and have children. There are a lot of things that we need to change in the church to make singles and those who are not, who do not fit into that typical mold. Um, know that they're not only welcome, but they're valuable. They, you know, they might have um, the skills to, to lead a Bible study. Uh, you don't have to be married to be able to teach and understand scripture, for instance. But there is this strange misconception that spiritual maturity only comes with <laughs> marriage and children, which we know is not true. Would you include also, we have so many women that struggle with uh, have fertility struggles oh, right have yeah. expressed you know the same some similar things as singles in different ways yeah so I even actually include a short section um, on infertility in the book because not only is it something that I'm dealing with personally but um, so many people I know and there is this idea that you you don't really understand life, the meaning of life until you have children. I've actually heard people say that life doesn't really start until you have kids. Um, and when the unmarried and when the infertile hear that, it just presses in on a wound that they can't fix. Um, so again, it's this idea that you can be more spiritual if fill in the blank. And I think what infertile couples need to know is that they have value even if they never have children. Singles need to know that they have value even if they never get married, um, that these are not the things that complete us, that Jesus alone satisfies. And so um, I think the infertile are a, a group in the church that often um, is invisible because it's a very difficult pain to talk about. And so that's something that we need to work on. I've seen just this month, it's um, infant Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month this month, right? Yes. And so I've seen some Christians actually sharing their stories. Um, and I think that is just, you know, one small way that we can shine light on um, a group of people in the church that often feel, um, I don't know, unloved and unnoticed. You know, that was one of the things, um, you know, I mentioned that book that I threw across the room. Part of the reason, <laughs> I know I laugh about it now. Um, I, uh, my husband and I married fairly young, right? We were in our early twenties. And so, 
you know, it can seem odd to say that I understand or I remember what it was like to be single, but I was, I didn't date much. I always wanted to be married. I wanted a family. Um, I was reading these books to try to get a sense of what to do while I was waiting. Right. And I felt like they did not understand what it was like to be, or didn't remember what it was like to be single. And I remember Mm. thinking at the time, if I get married, if I have a family, I'm going to remember what this is like so I can be empathetic with others because it was really unpleasant. That yeah. sense of, you know, your your life is on hold until, you know, what do I right. do until, you know? Um, and then with infertility, um, I had a stillbirth with our first baby. Oh. And I, no guarantees that I would have living children. Like they, we didn't know, you know. Right. So while we were blessed fairly quickly then with our children and, and didn't have many struggles as far as after that, as far as fertility, you know, these things have stuck with me about what it was to be single, what it was to be um, without a child and the things that you're wanting so much and not having. And uh, yes, I think it's very important that we speak about our stories and remember what it was like and encourage each other in these ways, because as you said, our lives matter regardless of our marital status, our ability to have children. We have value and worth Um, in Christ. We have value and worth as people. And we need to start, stop putting everybody in categories to find their worth. Um, Amen. So something that you mentioned um, a couple different places, but I wanted to see if you could focus on a little bit is how do these purity culture messages about sex and virginity, how do they add to the damage that abuse survivors experience? I think um, this idea, going back to what I said earlier, that, that they are somehow damaged goods um, because the virginity is the way that female worth is defined. Then those who have had their virginity stolen from them, um, you know, the books don't say, Oh, you, you're the um, chocolate cake with a piece missing, but they don't say that you're not. And so what abuse um, survivors hear is that they too are damaged goods. So not only is this lie that this, those who have sinned sexually are somehow worthless, but the um, abuse survivors hear the same message and internalize it. <clears throat> and I think too, going back to this rape culture rhetoric, when we teach that women are in charge of what men do sexually, um, that we somehow have the power to stop them, um, to, to, to prevent abuse, to prevent sexual sin, what victims hear is that they could have done something to stop what happened to them. And that's already something that um, survivors of abuse have to deal with constantly is this false guilt. Um, And so when that is actually coming from the church and being reinforced in the church, we are failing victims of sexual abuse. And there's stories out there that are blatant, um, examples of this, uh, somebody being raped at, at Bible college and yep. in the counseling. So were you dressed modestly? Yep. You know, were you flirting too much? Uh, I talked to one woman that she was sexually abused and in her teenage years did some biblical counseling that included making a list of her sin in it. And so these, oh these things happen, I, th- I think even still today. Um, what did you, what did you do to bring this on yourself? You know, Right. And I think just for anyone listening who thinks that we are 
exaggerating here or that this is a small sliver of stories. Um, it's actually so incredibly common. And I already knew that before I started writing the book. But when I started interviewing people, I was just devastated by the number of stories, just like what you describe, where Christians who were sexually abused in Christian institutions and churches were made to feel guilty for the sin committed against them. And like you said, even in Christian counseling, there is some Christian counseling that actually frames sexual abuse as, um, you know, it takes two to tango, right? And so you've got to figure out your sin in it first. Um, and so, oh goodness, there's just been so much incredible damage done. And I think what we see is in this mass exodus from evangelicalism, it's for many reasons, but one of the reasons if we um, dig into it a little bit is these people who grew up in purity culture who feel like um, God has failed them and they feel that way because of the false promises that were made by people, not God. Yeah. I think that's important. Um, you know, we've even seen people leave the faith and right. It's devastating. And yet, you know, you hear their stories and you can understand why they don't want to go back to church. Um, and so it's it's because if church is the place that they were sexually abused and the place where that abuse was excused, for instance, I mean, that's that's really hard to recover from. And I do believe that God is greater than that um, and that healing can come. But I think when we hear these stories, it's it's understandable why some people, you know, we call it church hurt, right? But church hurt is very real. And a lot of it comes from these uh, damaging purity culture messages. So what does sexual flourishing look like for Christians? I think that really is the question, right? <laughs> you know, when it comes down to it, and that's the question that I was asking um, as I was finishing up writing my book, um, that if, if sexuality is a God-created good, but sin has, you know, just made a mess of our sexuality in so many ways, can the Christian sexually flourish? Can a single Christian flourish sexually? Can a same-sex attracted Christian flourish sexually? Um, I think that one of the ways that we flourish sexually, regardless of our relationship status, is finding freedom from shame. And this goes back to what you just asked about people who've been abused, but even those of us who have sinned sexually, and I would say that's all of us, right? Because if you can, if you're committing adultery by looking at someone with lust, then that really um, includes all of us. So figuring out how to seek repentance and forgiveness from God for our sexual sin and then accepting that he forgives us and that we can move on in the fullness of Christ, that we are not less than human um, because of our sexual history, that we are image bearers of God, full of dignity and worth. And so I think we have to start there that, um, first of all, our sexuality is good. But even if we have done things with our sexuality that are not good, there is forgiveness at the cross. And then I think, too, um, for parents who are talking to their children, it starts with just not framing sexuality as negative. So not starting with the do nots, but starting with that we were created good. Um, and and also just... <laughs> There's a lot that could be said about what to talk to our kids about, 
But even when we're talking about um, their body parts, using the right words, knowing that it's not shameful to have body parts that are sexual organs, that God created them and that there's specific purposes for them, but they're nothing to be ashamed of. I think it, it even starts there with our children. I think that's a really good point. Um, it's, uh, you know, raising three boys. I have two teenagers and a preteen and mm. looking at how to encourage them in ways. And, you know, I've tried, especially as they're getting older and they've professed faith and to talk to them as their sister in Christ and unless as just mom trying to tell them what to do about mm-hmm. things, but encouraging them about ways like when you have struggles um, you know, here's a way to go about it. When you, when you're dealing with, you know, you know, you're talking to a, a young woman, and she's dressed in a way that makes you uncomfortable. It's your issue, and what do you do about that? How do you talk to her and treat her as a human, you know, with dignity? Because that's what your responsibility is, right? So, you know, exactly, trying to talk these ways and teach them um, about from all all perspectives like you're talking about like the the issues about so that they are protected from those who would abuse them that they know how to speak up and to speak to talk talk back and say no don't do this or if something happens that they can come talk to me exactly. um, one of the things my my parents did with me that I really appreciate is my dad always told us that um, we could always come to them no matter what no matter what happened in our lives, whatever, if we had done something or someone had done something to us, we could always come to them and we would be able to deal with whatever it was. Mm. And it would be, it would be fine. We would get through it together and not to be afraid to come talk to them. And, you know, That's so I, important. in my life, it wasn't much of an issue. Um, we part of my family. We have I have a really good friend who adopted my parents as, as her parents. And, you know, she, she found herself pregnant unexpectedly and she called me about it. And I'm like, it's okay. You can go to dad, you can tell them and they will understand and we will be here with you through it. And, you know, it's going to be okay. But I knew that because they had told me that and then lived it, you know? Right. And so I want my kids to have the same, you know, they can come to me no matter what. Right, right. And just establishing that sexual sin is not the um, the sin of all sins that, you know, somehow you you can't recover from that, right. um, but that your children can come to you with any kind of sin, with any kind of issue, with any question. I, that's really beautiful. And that's if we could start doing that in our family units um, with our children, it would make such a difference. I, I agree. Um so, how would you answer a question about how do we define or pursue purity wherever we are in our life, you know, regardless of stage of life or personal history? How do we as Christians pursue purity? I think it has to be about finding our joy in who Christ is. Whether we're married and having sex or single and celibate, he has to be the highest good. Um, purity is not so much um, this ladder to heaven as it is, I think, a way of worshiping God, because we know as Christians that our salvation does not come from our good works. And so pursuing purity is not about earning favor with God or um, making yourself a more attractive future spouse. 
Pursuing purity is a response to the grace and purity we've already been given in Christ. And that can't be changed, right? And so that's really important for us to remember that purity, the source of purity is not us because we fail at that every day. Um, The source of purity is Christ and he does not fail. And if we are in him and we have sought repentance, we are pure today. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, you are pure in Christ. And so I think it's a matter of abiding in him. When we mess up, we come to him, we seek forgiveness, and we accept that forgiveness. Um, I think it's really important for those of us who grew up in purity culture to remember that the pursuit of purity is lifelong. It's not just something you do in your teens and then you get to unleash all your you know, passions on your spouse. Um, sexual purity is a lifelong pursuit. It doesn't end at the altar. Um, because sexual self-control is something that you have to practice throughout your whole life. And we will fail at it. And there is forgiveness at the cross. I've spoken with a lot of uh, women that grew up in purity culture and really have struggled in marriage. Uh, One of the ways that I hear is because of the way purity was emphasized, they kind of felt like they became unpure on their wedding night. Right. And you know, and it's, it's caused struggles with our sex life. And um, Mm -hmm. you talked about um, the struggle of a woman with a sex drive. You know, I've, I've talked to women that say, you know, I was told my husband was going to want sex all the time, and I really wasn't. And then turns out my sex drive is stronger than his. So is something wrong with me? You know, um, there's so many different struggles that follow people into marriage. But what are some ways that someone who's struggling with these things can um, change the way they think about purity and some of the things they learned in purity culture? I do want to say I think your book will be helpful with that. And those study questions at the end of each chapter, I think, are also helpful. It could be a great book group or even just journaling through mm. some of those study questions. But what what Good. things are helpful? To someone who's dealing with... Um, the fallout of these messages in marriage. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned quite a few of the um, things I heard from people I interviewed, but even um, the reality of painful sex and things like vaginismus, um, those were things that were not talked about. And so dealing with, there are men and women in marriage who are dealing with the fact that they actually cannot have sex for whatever reason, maybe just for a season or maybe for years. And then this emphasis in the church that sex is like the glue that holds marriage together is devastating to couples struggling in this area. When we look at scripture, sex is absolutely part of marriage on earth and it's important and it's a gift. It is not the glue that holds a Christian marriage together. Christ is. And you can have a beautiful marriage um, for so many reasons other than sex. In fact, something that is also true is that Someone who is sinning and having sex outside marriage could be having a great sex life, a very enjoyable sex life. And people in marriage might be struggling to enjoy sex or, you know, to work through some of the issues that they have. And that doesn't mean that they don't have a good relationship because marriage is about um, loving one another selflessly. And so what I would encourage couples to do is to think about what loving their spouse selflessly might look like in their sex life. And maybe it might mean um, not uh, putting pressure on their spouse 
because they have a higher sex drive um, than their spouse. Or maybe it means um, showing love and way, you know, when they don't feel up for it. Or maybe it means um, letting go of expectations that haven't been met and realizing that you don't have to mirror other Christian couples to have a good marriage. Your sex life doesn't have to look like um, the sex life of someone, another couple in your church to be um, pure and God honoring. So I think it's so much of it has to do with comparison too. Um, on one hand, I think we do need to talk about these things more, but when we only talk about it in terms of, you know, you're comparing how often, you know, your friend told you she has sex with her husband this many times and you have sex with your husband this many times and you're determining the health of your marriage based on a number or um, based on comparison, you are going to be um, disappointed and you're going to be disappointed in your spouse when they haven't done anything wrong. And there's just, there's so much pain and hurt that can come from this. I think we need to remember that while sex is a blessing, it is not the glue that holds a relationship together. And I, I really think that there's been so much damage in the way that purity culture talked about sex, even that still happens that idea that sex is for the man, like the primary purpose of sex is to fulfill your husband's, you know, uncontrollable sex drive and, and just really, really damage the way we think about sex in general. Um, You know, some women resent it because of that. And it's really difficult. Well, and I, I think too, it's, it's worth noting that this idea that purity culture put forth that men are basically like, always on the verge of sexual sin. And so women have to keep them in line, whether in singleness or in marriage, it's very dehumanizing to men. And the Bible does not depict men that way. The Bible says that all who are in Christ um, have been given the opportunity to escape sin, right? That we, we can say no to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. And that's not just for women. It's also for men. And so I think just something that I want Christian wives to know is that how often they give their husband sex does not determine whether or not their husband stays faithful or not. Um, if if a Christian husband chooses to sin sexually, um, that is on him. And so this idea that if you just are, you know, hypervigilant enough and make sure that you satisfy him all the time, that he won't cheat or that your marriage will be great, that is not what sex is about. Sex is about unity, selfless giving. It's about love. It's not about um, one person in the relationship. And women cannot, uh, wives cannot control the actions of their husband. We are individuals. You are one in marriage, but you're two separate people. And so too often these messages actually lead women to feel guilty when husbands stray, assuming that if they had just done more for their spouse sexually, that their husband would not have had to, quote, look elsewhere. That's a whole other topic, but it's, it's a, an important one. I'm glad you brought that up because I see this a lot. You know, there's a lot of men, even Christian men that struggle with pornography and because of purity culture teachings, there's a lot of women out there thinking, what did I do wrong? That my husband is looking at pornography. Right. Absolutely. Um, I think it it goes back to this idea that marriage solves lust and it doesn't. And I think that's something that anyone who's been married or is married knows that sexual purity does not have an end date 
um, other than the return of Christ <laughs> and um, being in marriage and having sex doesn't mean that you will never struggle with um, sinful sexual desires or with the desire to be selfish with sex. Um, there, you can absolutely sin sexually within your marriage, within your sex life, within your marriage by treating sex um, selfishly. And this goes for men and women. Well, Rachel, this was so great. Um, we <laughs> highly recommend that people go purchase the book. In fact, you can go on Amazon right now and pre-order it so you can get some of those first copies uh, when it's released November 10th. Uh, I think this book is going to be very helpful for a lot of the um, both men and women that are struggling because of some of the messages within purity culture. Oh, I hope so. Thanks for letting me be on here to share a little bit about it. We'll see you next week.